Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College. Its annual Summer Institute for Educators takes place June 25th through 27th. Registration is now open at landmark.edu slash LCSI. From KQED. Welcome to the MindShift podcast, where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Ki Sung. And I'm Nima Gobier. Middle school is a time a lot of adults look back on with a feeling of dread, or at least with a cringe. Whether you loved it or hated it, middle school was likely memorable. Describe your middle school experience in one sentence. Uh, It was a time of exploration, deepening friendships, and uh, long-lasting friendships, I should say. Both amazing and tumultuous. Strange and challenging. Unpleasant (laughs) would be the way I would describe it. I feel like it was the most stressful time. This was just a smattering of responses from successful adults. That was Julia Wenyo, Danny Cornejo, Leo Milagro Enriquez, and Bruce Kane. They spoke with me at KQED's Night of Ideas. It's common to look back on these years, roughly 10 to 13, and cringe. One expert even calls it the age of embarrassment. But thanks to more research about the tween brain, the age of embarrassment is giving way to a new name, the age of opportunity. Today on the MindShift podcast, we're digging into early adolescence. Sure, puberty brings growth spurts and acne, but it's also a time when the brain is changing rapidly. We'll explore how the tween brain is different, why that matters for how they learn in school, and strategies for parents who are struggling to adapt. There's no shortage of advice on how to raise infants and toddlers. Sing to them. Read to them. Play with them. Don't stare at your phone. Make eye contact with your baby. Talk to them. Often. Build up that vocabulary. Experts load parents up with advice because baby and toddler brains are developing so rapidly. It's a great time to set them up for success with lots of stimulation. But what you may not know is early adolescence, ages 10 to 13, is another explosive time for brain development. And schools could be taking better advantage of all those synapses firing, says UC Berkeley adolescence expert Ron Dahl. Puberty is kicking in and they're undergoing all these rapid changes. Suddenly, tweens have all these hormones accelerating changes. Kids are growing taller, getting their periods, talking in deeper voices, and smelling bad. But it doesn't stop there. Changes in the brain's limbic system trigger tweens to feel every emotion more strongly. Their likes and dislikes, experiences both positive and negative. Disgust with you. Middle schoolers feel it all more. Ron Dahl says these intense feelings help tweens begin to define themselves. And this beginning of this more intense learning about self and other and and igniting passions and and connecting those to experimenting with who you are in relation to a larger world, uh, beginning to have a sense of meaning and purpose in a larger way, it is just as amazing, it is just as wonderful, and yes, it is challenging. Relationships matter so much at this age. Kids are learning to read the room and looking for more social cues, understanding hierarchy, looking for what is and isn't cool. 
that is what the brain is trying to learn about, how to develop successful social relationships. And those are as strongly emotional as they are cognitive. Those social connections and opportunities aren't just for recess, downtime, and school dances. They also belong in the classroom. I am Sarah LaDuff, and I am an eighth grade humanities teacher in San Jose, California. She's also a middle school teacher of the year. Sarah keeps the tween imperative for connection in mind with every teaching move she makes. Her class is very like homey. Like once you walk into her room, it's very like chill and like relaxed. No rose here. Sarah's going for a laid back vibe with Pharrell on the stereo and strings of lights creating some ambiance. There's like bean bags and like couches and everything. And it feels like a safe place to be. Brianna Gonzalez is an eighth grader in Sarah's class. After a moment for students to settle in and reflect on their week, the classwork begins, and kids are into it. Students are working in small groups to analyze political ads and talk about how the candidates' platforms would affect their lives. In all these activities, Sarah's using what she knows about this stage of adolescence, the importance of social relationships, centering them in the classroom. They're learning core standards through games like trashketball. If a student answers a question for their team correctly, they get a try at tossing a wadded-up piece of paper in the trash can. If they make it, they get to take points away from another team, which means elimination. Those little nods to social hierarchy keep these tween brains invested in the curriculum. Sarah's class, all this fun, is the learning. It's not a treat for good behavior or something saved for the end of a unit. Remember, the adolescent brain is particularly sticky for social experiences. And if you have a great one while learning, think about how that might affect a kid's interest in the subject. All right, appreciate your time. Make sure you're coming up with a plan. What are you going to do to fundraise today? Take, for example, how Sarah teaches politics. She breaks students into groups of four candidate, fundraiser, social media strategist, and website builder. Advertising needs, I need you. You do not need any papers. They have to think like their character. They're coming up with a political platform and strategy, but also thinking through the details of how they'd execute it together. Uh, it's going to cost you per copies. A hundred bucks, I think, for five copies. But Sarah's emphasis on making her classroom fit the tween brain doesn't stop with pro-social fun activities. Most middle schoolers are a ball of hormones. They've got a lot of feelings that they don't know what to do with. Sarah knows if she doesn't acknowledge all those swirling emotions, she'll never get her students to care about their academics. So she does something many of us would never dream of doing. What kind of cringy do you want? She reads to them from her middle school diary. Do you want uh, sad or like kind of funny cringy? Her diary is full of passages about crushes, naturally. Okay, ready? This is dangerous. All my life I've been curious about love, love obsessed, but I never allowed myself to feel it. I was too scared. 
but I just couldn't help myself this time. Sarah's clearly not afraid to make fun of herself in front of her students, but her journals aren't all about crushes and silliness. She also shares entries from her darker days in middle school. Useless gets accentuation because that's the leader of all my feelings. Useless, like butter with no food to spread it on. Useless, useless. My car doesn't have any brakes and I'm plummeting forward, uncontrolled and running out of time before I hit the wall. Sarah is normalizing the sadness she sometimes felt growing up because she knows her students are going through similar emotions. Somebody wrote to me yesterday, too, about feeling useless. And I think that's such a big feeling. When I think about being your age and feeling like I was good for nothing and comparing myself to everybody around me, And I'm telling you this right now because it's a normal part of being your age. She tells her students that journaling is a good way of getting those feelings out, but talking about them helps too. If you need a safe adult to talk to, I promise you I'm good for it. Coming up, we've got ideas for how parents can make themselves the go-to person their tween talks to. Stay with us. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair, available wherever you get your podcasts. Tweens are going through a lot, mentally and physically, but so are their parents. This transition is hard for everyone. Kids who were once warm, cozy, and close with you are now constantly embarrassed and frustrated by you. You don't get them, and you worry. Are they going to rebel against you so much that they try drugs, take sexual risks, do something regrettable online? For the most part, it's unlikely, says Professor Ron Dahl. In really carefully done studies, the majority of, quote, risk-taking that is done in early adolescence is pro-social. It's positive. It's, it's experimenting. It's trying new things. Risks, like trying out for a play, raising a hand in class, approaching a crush. It's not doing physically dangerous things. There certainly is more of that. But the majority of this tendency to explore is really driving learning. Uh, social, emotional, and motivational learning. Well, I would describe myself as funny, um, weird, very outgoing, very loud, because I can't be sometimes. 
We met Brianna earlier back in Sarah LaDuff's classroom. She's the one who described it as homey. When she tells me about herself, I can hear her doing some of that self-exploration Rondahl describes. And just overall, like, a person who understands and a person who, like, can be funny and, like, weird sometimes, but then can also be like, okay, like, I'm here for you. Like, what do you need from me? She's got a silly outgoing side, but she wants to be a good friend, too. She's still exploring, testing out who she wants to be. She's learning to adapt which parts of herself she shows depending on the situation. With my friends, it's just me being myself, you know? It's just like me showing and expressing how I am. This is all totally age-appropriate, says Phyllis Fagel, a therapist in a K-8 school in the Washington, D.C. area. Everything about early adolescence is defined by change. Phyllis has done extensive research on middle schoolers and wrote a book called Middle School Matters. If you ask a middle schooler to nominate their best friend or name their best friend, only about half those kids are going to name them back. About 12% of sixth graders have no one name them as a friend at all. According to Phyllis, only about a third of friendships survive a kid's first year of middle school. And so, of course, parents hear this and it just confirms their worst nightmare about middle school, that it's going to be this awful, awful time. But when I share those statistics with tweens themselves, they think, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one. This is happening to everyone. We're all getting dumped or fired by our friends, and it's not because there's something wrong with me. When Phyllis presents at middle schools, it's this last fact that blows kids' minds. It's happening to the popular kids. The popular kids are struggling just as much as the kids who have fewer friends. And in some cases, they're struggling even more. The social pressures are even more difficult to navigate. But there's hope for parents in all of this. Don't despair. No matter how many eye rolls you get or how often they push you away, your kids need you more than ever at this age. I always call middle school the last best chance because kids are still really impressionable. They care what adults think. They're starting to pull away from them just a little bit to spend more time with their friends, but they are still really absorbing all of your values. She says, don't try to fix their problems. Guide them through what to do. They're still listening to you at this age and they're primed to learn about how to succeed socially. They're learning how to make good decisions. They're learning what kind of person they want to be. And if you can get in there and coach them and parent them and help them figure it all out in these years, I have no doubt that they're going to make better choices later on when they're an older adolescent. Take Brianna, for instance, the eighth grader we heard from earlier. She sounds unflappable, but she gets her feelings hurt, too. I would say, like, mid-eighth grade. I would do some like weird stuff with my friends because we're like that. And people would take pictures of us and then they would post it on like Instagram and everything. And then um, some kids will be like, oh my God, is this you? Like, oh my God, that's so weird. And I'll be like, yeah, I guess it's weird, but like, it's me, it's like how I am. You, you shrug it off. Yeah, basically. But shrugging off painful criticism from peers is hard. It's not something Brianna just knew how to do. She's been practicing. Because my dad, he, like, messes around with us sometimes. And he says that I'm only doing this to you guys because I want you guys to be strong in the actual real life. Because if someone makes fun of you, then you'll be like, oh, okay, it doesn't really matter. Because, like, I've been taught and I've been, I learned that what people say shouldn't affect how your life is. 
developmental experts see this as an ideal response, coach rather than fix. I do empathize with parents. It's really, really hard to see your child suffer or struggle, and it's so tempting to jump in and try to fix it for them or write that wrong or immediately call the other parent. But we really don't want to do that work for them because if we do, we deprive them of some tremendous learning opportunities. All right, we need to address an elephant in the room, COVID kids have been stuck at home on screens and not interacting with one another in person for years. And it's been lonely. Now that they're back in school, things aren't quite the same. These kids simply just haven't had as much practice as they ordinarily would. And so you can see a lot more awkwardness, a lot more clumsiness. And kids who I would actually consider to be very confident and poised and socially skilled are feeling awkward. Phyllis likes to give middle schoolers concrete strategies to try when they're feeling that way. One student said, I just stand there outside at recess and I feel so awkward. And this was really somebody who didn't appear to be awkward to anybody else and probably didn't appear to look awkward even to her friends, but she just needed an assist. Phyllis suggested the student listen until she got the gist of the conversation and then ask a question related to what her friends were saying. Everyone loves answering questions about themselves. And that actually helped her relax because she had something to do with all that nervous energy. She was focusing on the conversation. She knew what she was going to do. And she came back and reported that it was really helpful. Phyllis also has tips on how to handle situations when kids feel left out. If you have an age group where everybody is experiencing emotions as a 10 on a scale of one to 10, when you have one of those social setbacks, when you're not invited to something or when your elementary school best friend moves on to somebody who has more sophisticated interests, it is so devastating. It is so hard to get out of your own head and even consider the possibility that it's happening to other people too. Imagine a situation where a kid's friends all got together without him. It's easy to think of the worst case scenario, that everyone hates them and they're no longer buddies. But most of the time, it's actually a far more benign reason. And so what I'll say to that kid is, I'd like you to come up with five alternative, more benign possible reasons that they didn't include you. Like the friends all happen to be at the same sports practice, or someone forgot to text you, or they thought you were busy. I add the caveat that I don't expect them to actually believe those reasons. I just want them to get in the habit of thinking more flexibly. I'm constantly looking for ways to reframe those moments that could be construed completely in a catastrophic way because nine times out of 10, it is pretty benign. So we can help them as adults just think about things more flexibly. The social skills Phyllis teaches aren't just about fitting in. They're directly related to school success as well. If you're not comfortable socially, you're certainly not going to feel comfortable taking a lot of risks in the classroom. And in order to learn, you have to be willing to make mistakes and put yourself out there. So they are really interrelated. Sarah LaDuff in San Jose is also working to help her students think flexibly about social situations and to gain a little more perspective. Remember that cringy diary entry about being love-obsessed? Sarah wasn't just sharing that to get a laugh. 
She's telling them about her first love, a fling that lasted all of three days, to show them that with a little distance, nothing seems so bad. And from that day, I knew that he was the first boy I'd ever let myself love. He is so stupid. Ready for this? I don't think I'd take those three days back if I had the chance. He wasn't imaginary, no. He's what we would call a bro. And he, and he had he had short, spiky hair. As is so often the case in classrooms, humor goes a long way. But Sarah's bigger goal here is to create a space for her students that is comfortable socially. That way it can be a safe place for them to push themselves academically. When she achieves those two things, she's maximizing this age of opportunity and using the tween brain to her advantage. Thanks to Sarah LaDuff for putting herself out there. And a special thank you to Brianna Gonzalez, Javier Farias, Andrea Mata-Alejo, Adriana Ureña, Ivan Martinez, and the students of Downtown College Prep Alum Rock Middle School in San Jose. Thanks also to Ron Dahl and Phyllis Fagel. Mindshift is produced by me, Ki Sung. And me, Nima Gobier. Our editors are Jessica Placek and Katrina Schwartz. Seth Samuel is our sound designer, Jen Chien is our head of podcast, and Holly Kernan is KQED's chief content officer. If you love Mindshift and enjoyed this episode, share with a friend. It's the best way for people to find out about the show. We really appreciate it. And if you want to share your thoughts on this episode, you can find us on Twitter at MindShiftKQED. Thank you for listening. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.